The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. September 17, 1862, the bloodiest single day of the American Civil War was, of course, the day of the Battle of Antietam, the battle that led to the issuance of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. If you go to Antietam today, you'll see beautifully preserved fields, buildings like the Dunker Church, the Sunken Road, and plenty of monuments to soldiers from states who fought here. But you won't see one for Michigan. Wolverine state soldiers played a key role in the Antietam campaign, from Lee's Lost Order to the West Woods to the Bloody Lane. We'll learn more about what they did, why there is no monument to them at Antietam, and how that may change, from Brian James Egan, co-author of Michigan at Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you as most Wednesday nights from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university or Brewster or the history department or the UNC system or anybody 
adjust myself, as I know our guest will do likewise. It is the last uh, show of 2015 that we're uh, putting out there tonight, the last Civil War Talk Radio episode. Classes are done for the semester. Final exams began today. Uh, had 160 students frantically writing their essays in front of me for two and a half hours. But Pirate Nation here at East Carolina is still reeling from the firing of the head football coach Ruffin McNeil last week, an event that made the national news and not in a good way. No one knows why this happened. Everybody here loves Coach Ruff. We love the way he cares for the players. We love that he gets most of them to graduate. And we love the last time uh, the Pirates played UNC Chapel Hill. We rang up 70 points on the flagship school. Uh, yes, it was a tough rebuilding year, but the, the firing was completely unexpected and seems premature premature to many DCU fans. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see what shakes out. Uh, personally, I'm hoping Jim Harbaugh gives him the defensive coordinator position at Michigan that has come open. Uh, he actually was almost hired by Harbaugh when, when Harbaugh was at Stanford, so it's not unrealistic. I can dream. Uh, well, in happier local news, uh, the as I was sitting here preparing for the show tonight, the email lights up. One of the distractions about doing the show from the office is the work email comes in. Uh, even while I'm doing it, fans, uh, the listeners from, from long time back will remember when this used to be done on Friday afternoons, I would get uh, email right during the show regularly, and sometimes it would be very distracting and disturbing. It's nice doing it on in the evening. But tonight, for some reason, the college uh, graduate assistant dean is sending out all these messages about things for chairs to deal with and i guess i'm still on the mailing list so i'm seeing these messages about low productivity programs and graduate student recruitment and this and the other thing and i'm just deleting them right and left and thinking i'm not the chair anymore the new chair can worry about this i look over at that giant stack of blue books i have to grade and i say amen this is what i signed on for not uh the bureaucratic battles. So that is good news. And also good news here on campus is the uh, success in meeting the funding target, uh, the short-term funding target for Heritage Hall, our uh, history uh, physical exhibit site for ECU history. It's a public history project. It will help uh, the students I work with. I'm uh, happy to do. Um, and it will be a, uh, a, a good opportunity going forward. And I appreciate all those who've contributed to Civil War Talk Radio uh, with uh, financial support in the last month in our one and only fundraising drive in 12 years. Uh, that money has been or has been pledged to Heritage Hall and is part of meeting that target. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. The whole project, uh, again, as long-time listeners remember, started with the question of renaming one of the dormitories on campus named for a 19th century political figure whose views on some matters, especially race, are quite outmoded. And it's part of a worldwide movement. Uh, you see it in, in the news all the time. A lot of us who care about history may have a knee-jerk response. Why do people want to change all these names, leave the monuments alone, leave the building names alone? 
But on reflection, my reaction is turning to the thought, hey, people care about history. Young people are, it matters to them uh, how we remember the past. And uh, to me, this can only be a good thing that uh, young people are getting excited and and concerned about history, uh, whether they share everyone else's view of it or not. Uh, We're not all going to agree on everything, so uh, that works. Personally, I think they should rename the ACOC dorm here for Coach Ruffin McNeil, uh, recently fired. That would settle two issues at once. Speaking of interested young people, uh, also while preparing for the show, just a minute ago, I got an very nice email from a descendant of Don Carlos Buell, uh, the Major General commanding the Army of the Ohio, and uh, the, the the young Buell is a high school senior doing research on his uh, ancestor, and uh, he and I are setting up a time to talk uh, about this and answer questions, so always good to see uh, younger people getting interested in doing things. If you're interested in hearing more about this, uh, about what we do here, of course, uh, the show's schedule is up on www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you can find out who's going to be on next. We're taking a break for the holiday season. We'll be back on January 13th, 2016, with Matt Spruill, retired colonel, uh, author, co-author of numerous Battlefield Guide books. On January 20th, Gregory P. Downs, author of After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War. On the 27th of January, we'll have Bill Bacchus. He's co-author of A Want of Vigilance, the Bristow Station Campaign, October 9 to 19, 1863. And then on February 3rd, uh, the return engagement of Christopher Dickey to talk about Our Man in Charleston, Britain's secret agent in the Civil War South, uh, making up for uh, an event we missed last time. I myself will be in uh, Chicagoland on January 8th, 2016, at the Northern Illinois Civil War Roundtable. If you're in that part of the country, come on by. And I also learned this week I will be doing the uh, This Hallowed Ground Civil War Battlefield Tour, May 21 through 29. So if you're interested in hanging out, seeing some utterly fascinating sites, uh, both well-known ones and some obscure ones that we, we dig up each year, Contact Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. You can Google that name and find out where they are. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours and uh, sign up for the May 21 through 29 This Hallowed Ground Tour. Uh, be happy to have you there. Well, that's a lot of news. It's our last show of the year. We've wrapped that up, and let's get to the show. We're talking tonight uh, with one of the two co-authors of Michigan at Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day. One of those co-authors is Jack Dempsey, who has been on the show before, and the other, who we welcome this evening, Brian James Egan. Mr. Egan, are you there? I am here. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. Uh, so, you are... Uh, in your day job, employed by the uh, Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, is that correct? That is correct. I'm currently the executive producer, and I oversee all of our film and video work that we do here. But I've been with the institution since 1992, mostly in the programmatic aspects of our operation here. 
Well, I grew up in Highland Park, Michigan, uh, before it became to Detroit what Detroit is to the rest of the country, unfortunately. Uh, but in the old days, uh, I spent many happy hours at uh, the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what uh, what the museum is, what, what the institution is all about? The Henry Ford was established in 1929 by Henry Ford himself, and, and over the years we've uh, amassed a collection started by Henry Ford documenting the American experience. It's probably the greatest collection of the American experience um, with 26 million artifacts and objects that we have here. We have an indoor museum, Henry Ford Museum, that showcases um, a lot of uh, innovations, uh, mechanical innovations, engineering me- innovations, social innovations. Uh, we have a variety of artifacts from the Lincoln assassination rocker to the Rosa Parks bus, um, some social innovation to the limousine that Kennedy was riding in when he was assassinating. Greenfield Village is an outdoor venue that has a lot of uh, buildings and other structures move from all parts of the United States, from the Wright Brothers Cycle Shop and uh, home to Menlo Park, Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory, from uh, Menlo Park, New Jersey, Harvey Firestone's boyhood home and birthplace. So it's a wide variety of, of uh, the American experience. Uh, it is a absolutely fascinating place. I regret that I haven't been there in, I'm going to say decades now, uh, have been away from Michigan for a while. But my recollection, uh, uh, certainly when I, when I was growing up, uh, say, say 40 years ago, the, the exhibits tended toward uh, what I'd call as a public historian, a sort of brute celebration of technology, uh, not just the 19th century steam engine, but Ten giant steam engines all in a row, uh, not just one of something, but a whole row of, of massive uh, uh, locomotives or automobiles. And I, I know, as, again, following the public history literature, that that has changed considerably. And and that's not how you present uh, your artifacts these days, is it? No, it has changed quite considerably. Um, to, you know, to expand a little bit upon that. I mean, Henry Ford initially, I think, wanted to collect one of everything ever made by an American from the beginning of America. So in terms of an encyclopedic understanding, that's absolutely uh, what we have here. But yes, we've expanded. We w- tell stories of of the everyday sort of common, uh, common man who uh, can grow up to do extraordinary things. Absolutely. Well, I, I, anyone living anywhere in the area, if you haven't been to the Henry Ford uh, Museum in Greenfield Village in, in the recent past, uh, you'll definitely want to go there and see that. Um, how did how did you get there? Um, what was your own uh, career path? I'm always curious because I, I teach public history, and I always like to hear from people who who are making a living uh, in a museum. Right. Well, I, uh, like many of you, are the people you've had on and many of your listeners, I was inspired at a very young age with history, uh, specifically mid-19th century Civil War history. And I went to school for that and put myself through school. I worked at a a local museum um, in Monroe County, my hometown, uh, home of General Custer. And I was a student curator at the Monroe Museum there and had the opportunity to... uh, 
um, help with exhibits, customer-related artifacts. I would drive our curator crazy every time we open an exhibit case. I would ask him if I could drink out of Custer's canteen or put on his <laughs> buffalo robe or, you know, draw his saber, you know. Um, so anyway, at that point, I was looking to get into an academic career of history um, with a Ph.D. in mind, but I ended up working here at the Henry Ford and sort of got hooked in the public history aspect, and I've been here ever since, 1992. And uh, my career has been deep dive in public history um, with researching and all the aspects of academic history, but not necessarily uh, following that pursuit. I've been able to use sort of the history platform and also uh, storytelling and video film work as well, doing not only uh, fictional sort of versions of, of history, but also documentaries for the Antietam National Battlefield, Fredericksburg, and, and other Civil War sites. Uh, well, I, you know, I have been to the uh, the museum in Monroe uh, in the last couple of years, uh, having not been to that when I was a uh, younger, I thought I'd better see it. And there is a lot of really interesting Custer stuff there. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it, it's off the beaten path a little bit, uh, a few dozen miles south of Detroit, but uh, that's another place, listeners, if you're in the area. Uh, don't miss that by any means. Uh, before we dive into Antietam itself, one more background question. Uh, how are you connected with uh, your co-author, Jack Dempsey? We we both serve on the Michigan Historical Commission, appointed by the governor of our state, and I serve as the chair of our Civil War Sesquicentennial Committee for the state of Michigan, which Jack, before re- becoming president of the commission, had that uh, seat. And our dual interests or our, our interests in Civil War history has sort of aligned us both professionally and uh, on a personal level of, of friendship, uh, which resulted in, in working on this project together. Uh, so through the Michigan Historical Commission. And how long did it take to write this book? Well, actually putting pen to paper or fingers to the, the keyboard probably a good solid three quarters of a year. Um, myself, I've been researching aspects of the, the Antietam campaign for many, many years, and Jack has, has been as well. Um, so as you know, from writing and, and, and doing work of the nature, um, the most challenging part is actually them putting things to paper, coalescing all of the, the, the information and sources and getting all the facts sort of straight. So it was probably a good three quarters of a year of, of hard writing. We're going to take a break in a minute, but let me ask you, a, a, I'll throw out a question for you to consider over the break, because it's uh, maybe not an easy question. Uh, as I'm looking at this, uh, Michigan and Antietam, the, the question that kept coming back to me is, it's a Michigan-centered book. I can relate to that. I born in Detroit, raised in Highland Park, went to University of Michigan. Uh, but isn't states' rights for the other guys? Uh, isn't focusing on, on uh, a state as opposed to the, the nation just the thing that these boys were fighting against? And we're going to come back and ask that uh, question to our guest, Brian James Egan. He's co-author of Michigan and Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Brian James Egan, co-author of Michigan at Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day, uh, a book that looks at uh, Michigan leaders and regiments at Antietam and in the Antietam campaign, as well as at the battlefield in the Michigan Monument, uh, which we'll discuss in just a moment. Uh, but Brian, I left you with uh, with a tough question: Why why focus on a not just Michigan, but any state uh, if states' rights is what the other side was fighting for? Yeah, I guess that would be a paradoxical uh, question posed. But um, I think each of the states has a great and significant story to tell, and their sacrifice, um, you know, needs to be remembered. Michigan, there's really not a single source of information or, or or work done on the Michigan story at Antietam. I think Jack, my co-author, uh, described it best when we do presentations that uh, many years ago he had visited the battlefield there and asked the park ranger, what about Michigan? What was Michigan's story here? And the response that Jack received back was, uh, not much. The Michigan didn't really play a role um, here at the battle. And you know, looking, you know, on the surface, um, Michigan did participate, definitely, but in doing this deep dive research and being close to the Michigan Civil War story, I had known that Michigan did play a little bit more than a, a casual um, cameo appearance in the battle. And so looking deep into this story, Michigan did have a substantial contribution 
to the campaign and to the story, whether it's from leadership down to the everyday foot soldier, um, they were they were there and they participated greatly in it. So I guess to answer your question, um, yeah, maybe maybe we have a little uh, uh, a little rebellious aspects to our nature in <laughs> writing about Michigan, but Michigan doesn't hasn't been represented in the story, and we're really hoping that this research can help cultivate even deeper research and stories about Michigan at the Battle of Antietam. We're looking at this as sort of a, a first step into a deeper dive of the stories. Now, one of those stories uh, concerns the lost order, and, and listeners to the show are familiar, I'm sure, with uh, Special Order 191, the, uh, the Lee's order to the Army of Northern Virginia for the entire campaign of the fall of 1862 and how that fell into Union hands. Uh, but you point out it was a Michigan man who had a key role in authenticating this order. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, Michigan sort of hold, held the key for uh, that portion of time. Lee's assistant adjutant general, R.H. Chilton, um, throughout that summer had been written, writing a lot of Lee's orders um, and executing the the commands of, of Robert E. Lee. And... Um, Around September 12th, as as we all know, a few soldiers from the 27th Indiana had stumbled across um, the Lost Order, or a, a section of the Lost Order 191, and it was immediately taken to the colonel of the regiment, um, Silas uh, Colgrove, who then brought it to um, General Williams, the division commanders, attention where upon reaching headquarters he delivered it directly to 31-year-old Lieutenant Samuel Pittman. And this is where sort of the ironies of the Civil War take place. Um, you know, receiving a letter that um, some information that basically detailed Lee's entire plans for the next several days, um, you know, at first they thought it was a ruse, a uh, ruse de guerre. Mm-hmm. Uh, because how could something this important, you know, be carelessly dropped or or lost? Um, but Chilton and Pittman sort of had met years previous, and um, before the war, Chilton served as in Detroit, Michigan, as a paymaster of the U.S. Army. At which time he kept his bank account uh, with the Michigan State Bank, and it just so happened that Samuel Pittman was a teller at that bank and had processed probably thousands of checks over the bank counter from children. And especially in that day with handwriting and and being a bank teller, um, he recognized the the signature and the handwriting of Chilton and he immediately authenticated that that indeed was the the handwriting of R.A. Chilton and authenticated that it was not a ruse. Um, Pittman um, sent it to or brought it to the attention of his commander, Williams, from Michigan, who then got it up to, the, to McClellan's headquarters. And then with that, of course, McClellan had some emboldened confidence for a few days um, that uh, he basically knew Lee's next plan. And I think he had boasted to General Gibbon that he had a had Lee's plan if he could not whip Bobby Lee with this information that he basically would go home. Um, and then we know what unfolded after that. Well, that that's uh, it's a story. It, I'm sure other some listeners have heard variations on that. Uh, sometimes it gets 
told in a shorthand version that uh, they knew each other before the war from West Point. And yet I think back to my college friends, and I couldn't necessarily recognize their handwriting, but the real story is much more convincing. As a, as a teller, seeing hundreds, if not thousands, of this guy's uh, checks with a signature on come through his desk, then yes, he would be familiar with what the guy's writing looked like. And, Absolutely. And so so he could authenticate that this this certainly came from Lee's headquarters, If if whether it's meant to be real or not you can't tell but it's not something drawn up by uh by by somebody just to pretend so with that information in mind uh as you point out mccullen was emboldened to uh push against lee's forces and that caused lee to have to defend the passes of south mountain long enough to allow the rest of his army to gather uh at uh, at sharpsburg and in Tinum creek what about the role of Michigan at South Mountain? Well, at South Mountain, well, and let me back up to McClellan. Sure. Sent out, you know, Pleasanton, I think it was, um, to sort of confirm the nature of the lost order, and indeed, you know, it was coming back that that what had been described in the lost order was playing out. So I think that. McClellan, as we all know, cautious at times, um, had a new bravado. But at South Mountain, uh, what we call the chapter rookie heroism, the 17th Michigan had uh, recently assembled in Michigan and was sent directly to Washington, D.C. And the ironic twist of military organization, it was the 24th Michigan who was supposed to be sent to the Army of the Potomac, um, to um, or follow McClellan with the Army of the Potomac, but it was the 17th Michigan. Uh, most of those troops had um, not even received um, significant military training up to that point, and um, during the Battle of South Mountain had been drawn up to um, lead, a, lead a, a charge which they dislodged Georgian troops, the 51st and 50th Georgia, behind a stone wall. Um, so these were basically green troops um, making an attack, and they were able to dislodge and, and push back the Georgian troops off the, the crest of the mountain. I think it was because they were so green and really didn't know what they were getting into that they had that that sweeping success. And there were parallels to a lot, a lot of the... I could draw parallels to um, Germany in World War II, um, 1944. A lot of those green troops wouldn't have done what they had done had they known. If they, had they been veteran troops, they knew that the situation would have been a lot dire. But uh, they had dislodged the Confederates behind a stone wall in an open field and thus named the Stonewall Regiment thereafter. So the... Uh now, was it the 17th that also fought at Antietam on the left flank in, in uh, Burnside's Corps? The 9th uh, Corps, yes. Uh, um, and because when you mentioned the Raw Regiment, uh, in, in that battle, you, your book briefly refers to a Connecticut regiment that is equally green, and they, the they run. Um, I'm, I'm going to say, was it the 16th? And I, I'd say that because uh, we had. Uh, uh, Leslie Gordon on the show not too long ago, and, and she's written a book called The, the Broken Regiment of the 16th Connecticut uh, that fought uh, at Antietam. They, I mean, they show up at Antietam. They don't even know which end of the gun to point uh, at the other side. And uh, and in their first uh, encounter, they they do 
they do badly. They they route from the field. And I just think it's interesting that the 17th Michigan was was no more experienced than the 16th Connecticut. It's just one of those fortunes of war things that one green regiment will, as you say, they'll they'll fight bravely because they don't know how dangerous the place is, and another unit will say, "We're getting out." Well, and I also think that it has to do with leadership as well. In the 17th mm-hmm. Michigan, the colonel was um, Withington. Um, uh, Colonel Withington, and he had been with the first Michigan, and so he had some experience, mm-hmm. you know, in in leadership and um, in conflict. Um, yes, I think it was the 16th Connecticut um, in Otto in the Otto cornfield. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, speaking of leadership, um, you mentioned uh, Alpheus Williams a moment ago, and he is a division commander in the 12th Corps. Uh, he is a brigadier general, and uh, trivia fans, if, if you want to have a good Civil War roundtable argument, discuss who is the best Union general who never got promoted from brigadier to major general. Uh, my, my money would be on Alpheus Williams. Uh, I agree. He, oh, he ends up, there, there's a wonderful statue to him uh, on Belle Isle uh, in Detroit, uh, which I would guess... Ninety-nine point eight percent of the population doesn't know who that guy is uh, when they go there, but it's a great statue. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, General Williams. Well, Williams had quite a bit of pre-war connection. He was appointed uh, Major General of the Michigan Militia prior to the war. Um, Lincoln had uh, commissioned him Brigadier General of Volunteers very early on. And as you were saying, um, he assumed command of the 12th Corps after General Mansfield was mortally wounded, however, mm-hmm. didn't maintain command of that. And one of the reasons that we theorize, too, if you look at the other general officers um, at the time, uh, most of them were West Point officers, and mm-hmm. Williams graduated from Yale. Whether or not there was a bias against the uh, the other universities or, or uh, universities or not, um, it's it's hard it's hard for us to understand why Williams wasn't ever promoted beyond brigadier general, and um, it's something that you know we we touch on in the book, but hoping to do more. I mean, that's worthy of more research and, and writing. It is his. Uh his letters to his family have been published, and you cite them in your book, the uh, uh, From the Cannon's Mouth. Uh, it's a great collection. Although the editor uh, stripped out all the, the personal letters to the wife and children and said, no one's interested in this stuff. We, we, I'm just going to leave in the military stuff. And that was in 1960, and today we would love to have the social stuff to go with it. But uh, Absolutely. You have to go back to the originals. Well, maybe his Yale degree, I don't know. I Speaking of somebody who has a Harvard degree, and I want listeners to know that because I mention it every show if possible, uh, maybe that's why they held it against him. Uh, so uh, Williams does take over the uh, uh, 12th Corps. Uh, the... The fight at Antietam is a story that, uh, again, listeners, uh, many of them have read books on this, are familiar with the general outline of the fighting. Uh, but you give a really vivid description of the maybe the worst moments for the Union Army at Antietam, the, the experience of Sedgwick's division 
going into the West Woods. Um, how was Michigan involved in that? Uh, yes, the Cedric's division um, probably lost, I think it was calculated, lost more than any other division. And and uh, the Dana's brigade within that division um, sustained some of the heaviest of all the brigades in that. The 7th Michigan was on the extreme left flank of Dana's brigade. And to visualize it, they were stacked up in columns of brigades um, going in. And we talk quite a bit about this in the book, where the subsequent brigades were unable to support the brigade in front. So the morning, early morning phase of the battle had taken place, and um, calling up more troops on the field, Sumner sent in Cedric's division to help support the 1st Corps and the sort of the left flank of the 12th Corps, who had fought previously. And Cedric's division stacked up in the brigades, marched basically from the East Woods across an open field into the West Woods. And at that time, the West Woods had been cleared of Confederates. This is just north of the Dunker Church area. It had been basically cleared of Confederate troops until such time that the, the opening brigade of Sedgwick's division crossed the Hagerstown Road and in, entered into the West Woods. And then some of the accounts is as if the Confederate troops had risen out of the ground and appeared out of nowhere. And the 7th Michigan was in the uh, left flank of the brigade, the 2nd Brigade, into the woods. And um, at that point, the Barksdales, uh, Mississippians, and other troops had flanked Dana's brigade and really the entire um, uh, division at that point, and it became pretty much a row. And within a very short amount of time, within a half hour, one accounts of the soldiers that they lost half of their fighting uh, effectiveness and in in the Seventh Michigan Regiment, um, many officers, line officers, had been killed. Um, their company commands um, were often uh, led by sergeants and NCOs. Um, General Dana himself had been uh, severely wounded, and Colonel Hall of the Seventh Michigan took over command of the brigade temporarily, but Dana was careful to note in his OR that they didn't leave the field until nearly all of their fighting force was exhausted, uh, but pretty much were routed at that and time. It, it, it's a, a giant ambush that they, they go into, just three brigades, one after the other, uh, not not deployed out in fighting formation, but just marching in a big column, and uh, uh, it, it your, your description shows how how the Seventh Michigan responded to that and tried to hold its ground uh, in this overwhelming force. Well, we're going to take another break, and uh, again, let me throw out the question ahead of time: uh, the the battlefield is is beautifully preserved today. The preservation efforts are are ongoing. New bits of land are being added by the Civil War Trust uh, and working with the Park Service. But uh, as we said at the top of the show, there is no, uh, there has been no monument to uh, the Michigan troops at Antietam. So uh, the question we'll come back with, uh, why not? And uh, secondly, how can that change? That's what we'll ask our guest tonight, Brian James Egan, co-author of Michigan at Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian James Egan, co-author of Michigan at Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day. For all the heroism by Michigan soldiers in the 17th Michigan of Sedgwick's uh, division of uh, units, uh, sorry, the 7th Michigan, uh, the 17th Michigan and uh, Burnside's Corps, uh, other units, other commanders like Williams, uh, Israel Richardson, and so on, for all that, uh, there is no Michigan monument at Antietam. Uh, why Why was one never put up? That's a very good question that we really haven't found an answer that we feel satisfactorily answers uh, the reason why. Um, for um, reasons that are unknown to us, Michigan did participate or does not have a monument on the battlefield at Antietam. However, they did participate in the in the National Cemetery, the Antietam National Cemetery, and one of our future governors at the time, Judson Bagley, um, uh, John Judson Bagley, did serve on that commission and participate and um, ensure Michigan's participation at. But Michigan is one of the few states, if the only state that does not have a monument on the battlefield at Antietam. Of course, uh, today there exists a no new monument policy on the on many Civil War battlefields. And so the opportunity to put a monument um, recognizing the sacrifice of our state um, may not exist. 
so is is uh, the Park Service would not allow it. Is there any possibility of doing something uh, on on adjacent land? Yes, that's where we um, that's where the story sort of unfolds. The center part of the battlefield, which up until recently, several months back, had been in private uh, ownership. And I think many of your listeners probably are familiar with the Civil War Trust, and they had just recently purchased what they're calling the epicenter of the Battle of Antietam from the Wilson family. Um, Prior to that, uh, about two years out, we had formed the Michigan Civil War Association here in Michigan uh, for the purposes of purchasing a 400-square-foot easement of property from the Wilsons and working closely with the National Park Service there, although they would rather us not erect a monument, uh, recognize the fact that the way we were going about this on private land, that, um, you know, their jurisdiction really didn't cover that area. So we're working in cooperation with the Park Service in so much as um, with scale and scope of of what the monument would look like, and they asked us to... um, concede to the location. So where they had decided that this easement for a future monument would go would be at the point along the Hagerstown, Dunker Church Road, where the 7th Michigan crossed over the road. So what we're hoping to do with the proceeds from this book is to raise money to erect a monument to the Michigan sacrifice at Antietam. So I think it's a fascinating story of, of, uh, of you know, cooperation, the Park Service has its policy, and one can understand that uh, as, as wonderful as Gettysburg is, there are times you look at it and there's just monuments everywhere. It's harder to visualize what really happened there. Uh, you don't want a proliferation of monuments and the competition right. of states putting up multiple monuments. But the idea that, that Michigan has doesn't have one and other states do, it doesn't seem unreasonable and uh, you know, it sounds like you're you're finding a way to work with the Park Service to make this happen. Correct. And one of the reasons is Monument Blight, which they refer to. But I think the other mm-hmm. aspect is they receive new monuments that eventually are deeded to the Park Service, but they don't have the appropriations necessary to take care of mm-hmm. them in the future. So we're hoping to create a sort of a legacy fund that can help take care of this monument with maintenance and repair issues. So in working with the superintendent, Susan Trail, and her historians there, um, they just want to make sure that it's within the scale and scope mm-hmm. of of the field and and the integrity of the other monuments. And my first response was, we're not New York. We're not going to build a a monolithic castle like uh, a lot of New York monuments are. I mean, the best example of that is on the other side of Burnside Bridge, you have the 51st New York, and it's the size of a you know, small two-story house, and then you have the 51st Pennsylvania that's the size of a drum right next to each other. Um, So we're, we're... our intention is to create something that's the integrity of the late 19th century aesthetic um, that's you know, pleasantly situated on the location that they prescribed, and we couldn't be happier with that. So we want to be in lockstep with the Park Service every step of the way. I've had personal workings with the Park Service there from the uh, Antietam documentary film that we did for them many years ago to working with John Howard on sort of period agricultural practices and 
non-hybrid planting cornfields, uh, the Miller cornfield and whatnot. So we feel very happy with um, moving forward. If uh, listeners want to contribute to this, uh, I guess the best way would be to buy a copy of the book, uh, Michigan at Antietam. Is there any other, anything else uh, we should share? Absolutely. Um, if you just Google Michigan Civil War Association, we have a, a Facebook page that we have started, and we're currently in the process of getting a website up and running. We're just in the early stages of fundraising uh, for this this project. So the momentum is just building. And uh, speaking of websites, uh, one feature of the, the book uh, I'm looking at is that you have uh, uh, many pages of footnotes uh, there is no bibliography in the book, but that's because you have the bibliography online at uh, uh, micwc.typepad.com slash blog. So if people Google Michigan Civil War blog, they can uh, check out the bibliography to this book before they uh, go out and get the book itself. Uh, yeah, we were asked to submit about a 50,000-word manuscript, and our, our initial one was around 85,000 <laughs> They'd asked us to cut something, and we really didn't want to cut any of the primary research and the endnotes, mm-hmm. which I actually find more fascinating sometimes than the prose itself. So that was one concession we did make. Well, that that uh, the History Press is the publisher of this book. Uh, listeners should know if, if, when you want to go looking for it. Uh, and the History Press is a great uh, does a great service in bringing a lot of local history to light that otherwise. Uh, wouldn't be out there, but uh, I hope your next uh, project you can can take it to uh, you know, perhaps an academic press or a specialty Civil War press that will let you put the whole whole shebang in there, um, because uh, as you say, many of us uh, do enjoy the notes, uh, the research, uh, want to see where the background is uh, going through, and there are. Looking at here, 874 notes in the book. Um, as I was reading this, I, there were times I, I thought uh, it, it reminded me, and, and I'm saying this in the spirit of collegial uh, shared commentary. Please don't take it uh, as a negative. Uh, watching a really talented athlete uh, trying to play a different sport, say golf, for the first time. Uh, so the grip is not the right grip or the stance is not the right stance, but you can just see this passion and ability all the way. Um, but something like numbering the footnotes consecutively through the whole book, as I was looking at it, I'm thinking, man, if this were my student, I'd be like, don't do that. Uh, you know, renumber them so we can tell. So, so, so they, they fit on the page better and you can tell where you are and do this and do the other thing to fit the uh, standard format. But that... We lost that fight, Jerry. We we tried to do that. <laughs> I come that's from the academic background, and I wanted to do that, but I lost right. that fight. That, that that's one of the you know we fight all in public history. We fight all the time. Uh, you know, as a historian, you want one thing, but the, uh, the the people want to preserve the artifacts want another thing. The people who are fundraising want another thing. The people who are uh, the education people want a different thing, and and it's constantly compromising. And so with a press like the History Press, that's the kind of fight you you encounter and you have to deal with them. So, uh, uh, But with this out there, this uh, and this does tell the story of Michigan at Antietam as no other source does. Uh, 
you know, you guys are making a name. Now you can uh, go to the next level with the next book. The the challenge is always getting published. Uh, you can't get published unless you have uh, previously published a book in many cases, and that, that Catch-22 is, is a problem. Uh, but you guys have one here, and I'm, I'm looking at your bibliography online, and, and again, uh, it all kinds of great stuff. It, it's a shame they wouldn't put that in. Um, we're running low on time, but I want to ask really quickly about uh, John A. Clark. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your, your encounter with this bit of Civil War history. We are all familiar with Alexander Gardner's photograph of a federal soldier buried, a Confederate soldier not buried where they fell on the battlefield of Antietam. It, it's the iconic photograph that Bill Frasnito had discovered or had brought to light in his his book done in the late uh, 70s, um, early 80s. Um, John Clark, um, the soldier buried in that earthen grave, uh, was a 19-year-old um, resident of Monroe, Michigan, my hometown. And at the time that I had fell upon that story, I was 19 years old, too. And I had written Bill Fresnito a letter basically saying, I live in Monroe County, Michigan. I would love to do research for you, help you out whatever way I could. Um, and surprisingly, a, a few weeks later, I got a letter back saying, indeed, I would love to see a photograph of the home and his grave in Monroe if it existed. And in so doing, finding out where that house was and the grave, I had basically had found there were a couple points of his conclusions in the book that were not necessarily accurate. So I basically spent the next nine months doing a master's thesis amount of research, making sure when I told him my conclusions that I had supporting information for that. And what had developed from that was a lifelong interest in, in this man and his life story. And he had a first cousin uh, named John Anderson, and they were both the same age. They shared each other's last name was their middle name, John Anderson Clark, John Clark Anderson. Um, his cousin, would, John, Ander, excuse me, John Anderson, was killed. Um, as the Detroit Free Press said, shot through the head and instantly killed a ga- gallant and worthy young officer. His first cousin was severely wounded in the shoulder at Antietam and subsequently died on Christmas Day, 1866. So this is an iconic story of sacrifice that's common both throughout the North and the South, and John Clark is one of those characters where, of, of the past where, although I never met him, I know him well. And um, I think about how my life continued on, and I was able to go to school and have a career in history and enjoy all the benefits of life and married and have a daughter, and that ended for him. And I always like to use him as a representative soldier of that sacrifice, whether it's Civil War or any, who you know, gave up that life for our freedoms today. And to me, that's what it all comes down to. Well, it's a a great story to to go from this one photograph with, on which with a magnifying glass, you can just make out the name on the wooden headboard and then uh, to trace the the full story of that person. And uh, as a historian, part of it that really grabbed me was when you learned there was, there was a John A. Clark and a John C. Anderson for, at, at one point, there there was some concern that maybe there was a mix-up that you had the wrong guy. Absolutely. Uh, in in the Monroe Museum, there is a 
carte de visite photographic album that Custer had put together for his one of his favorite teachers, Sunday school teachers in Monroe. And he had businessmen and prominent soldiers and, and other people. And in there is a photograph of John Clark, which published in the Fresnado book, identified the man in the grave. This is his image, John Clark. In, mm-hmm. this, in the photographic album, in pencil, it's written John Anderson. So I had sort of panicked thinking that, well, maybe the man in the grave is John Anderson and not John Clark. So I needed to find another photograph of John Anderson, and which I did, and it was him in civilian clothes, this supposedly John Anderson, but he was wearing a second core badge, and the second core badge, the trifoil on his lapel. And as we know, the core badge system came about when General Hooker was in place in January of 1863. So John Clark would have never worn a core badge. So that sort of had confirmed the story or the information that that was indeed John Clark. And I write about it more in detail in the book. Yeah, so it's a great story. And we don't always get those moments where you can find a piece of evidence like that, like the core badge, and say, okay, that's clearly not it. Um, So... uh, uh, well, we are out of time, unfortunately, so we're going to have to stop here and uh, uh, urge listeners to take a look at Michigan at Antietam. And uh, Brian, it's a pleasure talking with you and hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks for being thank on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jerry. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening.